Hi, hello. Welcome to Arguing About Aster with your uh, friends, Delphi <laughs> and Eric and Jeremy. My name is Eric Keppel. And my name is Jeremy Schmiz. It's good to be here, Eric. Folks, you may you may notice that we have a bit of a, a, a more somber tone, Jeremy, and uh, that's because we're we're the Chucky movies are fun. The Chucky movies, you know, we've got comedy, we've got <laughs> camp, but folks, we're setting all that aside for a couple episodes, and we're talking Ari Aster, baby. Yeah, the saddest director in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so for for two episodes, we will be doing uh, Hereditary. And then uh, Midsommar, and then uh, I think we'll probably cover some of the short films in the uh, the Patreon episodes. But and Jeremy, I got I gotta say, Eric, I love the way you say Midsummer, Midsummer. You know what? I'm I'm self conscious about it because I feel like I'm still saying it wrong, even though I'm trying to say it right. Uh huh. But. The thing is, I Jeremy, I saw Midsommar uh, now, I think, four days ago, and I have been on just an epic, uh, an epic quest to understand Ari Aster. I've been mm. listening to interviews, podcasts, reading Reddit threads. I'm, <laughs> uh, mind you, I'm unemployed right now, so I have <laughs> all the time in the world uh, to rewatch Hereditary, and I, I just watched all of his short films, and... God damn it, Jeremy, if I'm not obsessed. Yeah. I got to say, um, this is a hot time to be arguing about Ari Aster since it feels like every day, and maybe it's just because of the circles I run in, but every day I'm getting sent articles and just different media sources relating to Midsummer and Ari Aster's career sort of in tandem. Doesn't it feel like that? Like, like Twitter is sort of... All about that Ari Aster. It's all about a lot of stuff, but Ari right. Aster is definitely one of those things for right now. I know Dad wears glasses and me have been chatting um, and uh, sending each other, you know, Ari Aster stuff and telegrams, telegrams with uh, <laughs> telegrams with URLs inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we have to manually type into our computers. But yeah, no, I, I feel I feel very much a part of something right now doesn't it kind of feel like a not a movement but you know what i mean it's like everyone's talking about the same thing and it's this fucking weirdos two feature films (laughs) i will say everyone in our circle is talking about the same thing i think i i don't know how big mid mid samar has been globally i don't even know how big it has been uh, hereditary has been really because when when that film came out i was just living in hollywood Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know, but I, I, I love, I'm experiencing the same thing, Jeremy, and I, I really enjoy it because I actually support it this time. I think, right. you know, the, uh, there's a lot of, like, I think Game of Thrones was the last sort of obsession that, that people were involved in, uh, collectively, uh, in my, in my neck of the woods. And I never watched that show, so I felt left out. Um, yeah, I hear that. But yeah, I'm I'm very much, and I've mentioned my love of David Lynch and Twin Peaks many times, probably too many. Yeah, and uh, but I I'm the type of person who my ideal show, if it's not a comedy or 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 film, is uh something that I go home immediately and just spend like four hours reading like weird message boards about and uh like looking like 
like combing the Wikipedia page and stuff like that. And uh, I have done that with uh, both of Ari Aster's films so far. Yeah. And I remember when you were doing that with Twin Peaks, because I think you were still living in Hollywood when the new season aired and you were just, it, it consumed you. Like a play. I wouldn't shut up about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I think all that stuff is very fun. It's always like David Lynch films that I end up on Reddit threads for hours and hours afterwards. Yeah. Uh, video games oftentimes will, ha- will have this element to them where like a video game you really like will end and like the ending will be sort of esoteric or... You know, it's it's sort of like up to the to the player to kind of decide how they feel about it, and so uh, th- th- those often give me a lot of excuses to jump on a Reddit thread and kind of see how's everyone feeling about this, or like what do we actually think happened in the end of Bioshock or whatever, you know? Uh, right. But but yeah, fil- uh, doing this with films can be it's rare. I think it's rare, but it's so fun. I think the closest thing to this in that's not art films would be like looking up Easter eggs for your comic book movies. Cause I feel like those have a lot of like sure. hidden stuff inside of them. But other than that, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not often you get a film or a piece of media that's just so dense with hidden meaning and metaphor that it keeps you up at night, sort of combing the internet saying what everyone's, what everyone's thinking about it. Right. And I will say, while I did that for Midsommar, and I've now kind of done that for Hereditary, Mm -hmm. uh, I first saw Hereditary during the theatrical release, like you did. Um, I saw it at the Hollywood Arclight, and I, I loved it, and I was very inspired by it. At the same time, that movie for me was not one where I, I even wanted to, like, look up the and we'll get into it. I, I understand like the payment stuff and what was going on right. like in the plot. Um but I feel like there is this uh there's something that I missed out on about hereditary in not doing that that kind of research mm-hmm. that maybe this film requires. Mm-hmm. Uh it, it I, I I like I said, I understand what's going on and we'll go through the plot and everything. Yeah. Um but I feel like this film is more it, it, as great as as the script is. I just think the directing was like it, it was so refreshing to uh, to kind of experience just a director with like an entirely different take on horror. Yeah. That I was more impressed with that than I was the actual story behind it um yeah yeah. i I actually have a thought about that uh so i for the listener we are going to be doing an episode on hereditary and then next week we'll be doing an episode on midsummer and then for our for our patreon subscribers we'll be doing all of ari aster shorts uh, yes, so you can and this ch- is yeah. something that we've been planning on doing for months, right, Jeremy? <laughs> yeah, for months. <laughs> yeah, we didn't just decide this uh, minutes before going live. <laughs> but, of course not. Of course not. That's not the chat about Chucky way. <laughs> uh, but uh, I will say that um, these are going to be two different, two like, very different and interesting conversations about each one of these films. And on the topic of, you know, you said you didn't go home and spend as much time combing the internet for like meaning on, on hereditary as you did on mm-hmm. midsummer. I actually think it's because hereditary uh, meets you halfway and midsummer actually uh, it doesn't meet you halfway that uh, right. th- there's something about, 
I guess the setting and the construction of Midsummer that I think got me at least more excited to jump on the internet and try to figure out what the hell's going on because I think it's a little bit more vague. Whereas Hereditary, for all of its weirdness and all of its plot twists and sort of, I don't know, bizarre culty aspects, it tells a pretty straightforward story. Or right. at least or at least you know, you can get you can get it summed up for you in like one Google search. As opposed to Midsummer, I feel like it's a little bit more open. It's it breathes a little bit more. Um, yes, and and just it's like from he- a, yeah, one of those wines that you have to like yeah. pour in a weird vial type thing, decanting. I think is what they call it. <laughs> it's like a decanter, and <laughs> and just from like hearing like for, uh, some of the stuff you've been saying on Twitter about Midsummer, I I'm really excited to talk about that movie too because I feel mm-hmm. like we 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 both loved it but pulled different meanings out of it Um, yeah and i will say that my interpretation of the film is like it's been changing every single day it's it's so weird i can't stop thinking about that movie um and it it prompted me of course to rewatch hereditary uh which we'll be talking about so jeremy i remember um around i always like to hear about what's what's a buzz around the sundance film festival uh and I remember in last year, I guess, 2018, hearing mm-hmm. a lot about uh, this movie Hereditary and how it's supposed to be like the scariest movie uh, of all time is kind of how it was being presented. And uh, all that I saw of it before seeing the film was this one image, which I don't know if it's like the the cover or just the poster art they were using, but it was like a human being on fire in a living room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you have any expectations like that going into Hereditary? I guess, you know, my only hope was going into it. Because it, I saw that image of the person on fire too. And I noticed that we had an actor in our cast whose name was Gabriel Byrne. And I thought if that's mm. not the person who's on fire... <laughs> then they've made a grave mistake. And Eric, they didn't make a mistake. It is Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I guess um, I just thought the trailer looked cool, honestly. Uh, this is at a time, you know, the last two years, I would say, have been a bit of a dark period for me going to the going to the theater and seeing movies and keeping up with what's happening in cinema. But uh, I thought the yeah. trailer looked cool. And for whatever reason, me and my girlfriend, we just had the, a free night on opening night. So I believe it was like the Friday. So it wouldn't have been like a midnight showing or something on a Thursday. It was a, it was a Friday, Friday night. You know, we, we got pretty good seats in a packed theater and... Um, uh, I've I've said this before and I'll say it again. This is probably the best movie going experience I've had in ten years. I think in a decade uh, was going to see Hereditary. This movie scared the shit out of me. It scared me. It scared it scared the life out of me. I was I was horrified to the point and so tense. Really, it was a tension, like a back hurting tension, that I almost left the theater because I was in such panic. But I was also like laughing. Like how at how ridiculously tense I felt. <laughs> like, right. I, I just kept turning to my girlfriend and being like, "This is insane. It's, it's got to stop. This madness has to stop." You know, I was like, it, it was like this panic of like, "Are you crazy right now? Showing me this movie?" <laughs> uh, 
And then also in the theater, you know, since it was packed, people were doing that clicking sound with their mouth that yeah. the daughter so famously does. And that was freaking me out. I thought someone was going to touch me. I was like, I, I, it had both the, um, the panic of watching the film, but also the panic of experiencing the film with a large group of people. It was a rush, man. I got to say, I haven't felt that, I haven't felt that much seeing a film in a, in a, in a, again, it has been over 10 years for sure. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I that the those clicks, by the way, when you because I I rewatched this film yesterday, and when when you hear those clicks and they're actually part of the movie, and you hear where they're where they're placed, they're like so. And <laughs> this is like the scariest moments of the film. I think there's a moment where Tony Collette is like driving, and she hears one and like yes. pulls over or something. That's yeah. just like insane but uh but yeah so one of the reasons I, I i'm glad that you brought up like just the idea of laughing at the, at this film uh because something that i didn't even know about ari aster before this is uh or before maybe yesterday is he he likes doing comedy his his short films are all pretty much comedic have you seen any of his short films yet uh, up to this point i have not no so i'm really excited uh because i watched all of them except for two last night mm-hmm. uh and he has a really really weird dark sense of humor yeah where if i would have watched hereditary after watching all of his short films i think i would have found it like funny in a way yeah um like it's still just one of the darkest films you could ever possibly watch (laughs) but it's funny and and after midsummer which we'll obviously talk about in the next episode um i did not laugh once during the two and a half hours (laughs) of that movie of midsummer really yeah but at the same time afterwards when i was thinking about just different things that happened the whole film as a whole was just very funny to me yeah and uh i i kind of got it in like a in in from like a humor point of view afterwards was Um, the theater packed like was the theater packed when you saw it or were it was a small theater but it was pretty full i mean there were there were some moments where people kind of chuckled a little bit you know what i mean like the there's that one guy who looks like John Mulaney, but 10 years <laughs> younger. <laughs> yeah, I will say um, my experience watching Midsummer was, and well, we should maybe get more into that when we talk about Midsummer. But it was the opposite. That movie was a laugh a minute. Uh, the whole theater was like dying, uh, and, and at parts they were laughing at parts that I just thought were a little bit funny. But they were yeah. like thinking it was fucking hysterical. Up until the very end of the film, they were still laughing at stuff. And I thought it was so... And it, it, it was interesting because... And it, I guess this is the point I really wanted to make was like, you know, if you watch a really good David Lynch film, yeah, it's weird and kind of scary, but it's they're also so funny too. Right. And I feel like a lot of these like high concept, uh, highbrow dramas are so like it's like they're soaked in irony and dark humor people don't really consider that um but hereditary is super funny like there are specific moments of the film uh one particular i remember when tony collette is grieving over 
over the loss of her daughter, uh, it, it, it then cuts to her still grieving in the same tone of voice uh, at a funeral. Like without, like right. without even hearing a be- a beat, a, like a skip of the screaming and wailing, and that's a to- that is a comedic cut. That is a cut that was made specifically for comedic effect. It's the same thing as like when someone's telling a really long story, you might cut to a different location of them still telling the same story. It's that same joke, like visual gag. And I think that like I don't know, it's something about seeing a movie with a theater that's ready, that's either a seen the film before or ready to laugh. Um, you get a completely different experience. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but The Phantom Thread was a film that when I saw it the first time, it, not a laugh in the house. People were just like watching it like you might watch, I don't know, an opera. <laughs> yeah. But but uh, I, saw it the, I saw it a second time at a midnight showing where Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood introduced the film. And it, it played like a Monty Python comedy. It played like everything was suddenly fucking hilarious. And I just thought that was so interesting, you know, because the film is both very darkly funny and also very melodramatic and serious. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't like, uh, I didn't like that movie for the first like three quarters of the film. Uh, and then it, do- it took forever to dawn on me that like, Oh, Daniel day Lewis is like, a caricature of of like an artist that just takes himself far too seriously, yeah. and this is actually like very silly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm slow, Jeremy. I, my brain does not work as quickly as the average human. And, I mean, I'm uh, even more embarrassed. Okay, so I'm I'm more embarrassed that like I need a room full of people to tell me what a movie is. <laughs> you know, like without yeah. them laughing, I didn't realize that Phantom Thread was supposed to be funny. It took me watching it with a different group of people. Right. Yeah. So. Hereditary. Uh, Jeremy, Hereditary is a uh, 2018 supernatural (laughs) horror uh, Uh psychological drama. Um, And we all know it's directed and written by Ari Aster, of course. His Mm -hmm. uh, feature uh, directorial debut. Oh, I wanted to say real quick about his short films. The one that he's most known for is, I think it's called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. That short film is as a comedy writer uh infuriating because after seeing that this guy can do horror and drama so well yeah that short film is like one of the funniest things i've seen in a long time damn it um, yeah <laughs> he, sh- he shouldn't be great. allowed to do it's both not fair and he's yeah. he's basically our age which is <laughs> oh, great great uh, so the film uh, stars Tony Collette, Alex Wolf, uh, Millie Shapiro, and Gabriel Byrne. Uh, the aforementioned Gabriel Byrne. It uh, it was a select. It 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 was in the midnight section at the 2018 Sundance Festival, released theatrically in the U.S. on June 8th, 2018. Just a mere year ago, Jeremy, and um, yeah. So you so you've seen this movie once. Just that one time. Is that is that correct? Yeah. I will say that, like, to jump on a uh, podcast where I have to speak about something in great detail, but having only seen it once is not the best look. But I will say that this particular film is um, uh, so... It's burned so 
effervescently in my mind. I, I, right. I'm never going to forget it. I could probably detail the plot to you without looking at a Wikipedia article right now. I, I, I remember so much. So I remember it so vividly. And honestly, I haven't watched it again because sometimes you go on a ride that's so profound. It's like, I don't want to watch it again, even though I might even get something new out of it. I just don't, I kind of like that memory of it, you know? Right. I will say that this is a movie that I, I, after I saw it, I said that I will never see this again. Uh, and cut to a year later, I saw it. (laughs) it, (laughs) Um, but, yeah, I, I I will say when I started this film, and it's only been a year, but when I started this film yesterday, uh, like 20 minutes into it, uh, when I was thinking about the things that I had to look forward to, like a young girl getting decapitated by a telephone <laughs> pole, I was like, I, can re- I remember all of these things are so gruesome, and if not like gruesome and, and uh, depressing, like just very the whole thing is so well paced that i just remember everything really well where i don't think you need to see this movie more than once and uh i'm kind of i'm kind of stoked to go through the plot with you jeremy so yeah do you have any any final thoughts about the film uh all dogs go to heaven before we dive in um i guess there's a bunch of we could talk about some ancillary stuff i thought was kind of interesting about the making of the film, but, um, yes, but like, like there's like, I'm reading one thing that's like Tony Collette apparently told her agent. She didn't want to do any more heavy dark films and only wanted to do comedies, but she loved the hereditary script so much that she couldn't turn it down, which is cra- which is crazy because she was like the first actress he wanted. Like he sought right. after her. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the film, the whole film was shot in 32 days. I think that's like so crazy. Tony Collette said that Ari Aster was the most prepared director she'd ever met, she'd ever worked with. Wow. Yeah. And she's got like a long storied uh, career. She's got quite a resume. Yeah, she's got a huge resume, but he has, this is his first feature film. I know. So that's that's it's so amazing to hear that about about him. He the way that he talks in interviews about movies. He I, I was listening to an interview with him the other day where he someone asked him about uh, his, his storyboarding process and how he like selects shots. And what he does is before he even speaks to anyone in in the camera department or any sort of cinematographer, after he writes a script, he I guess he he uh he he develops an entire shot list without without talking to anyone else so he has yeah. the whole movie in his head before he even like crews it up which is crazy but it, it it's it's amazing um and then another another tidbit that i heard on this interview yesterday was he i guess the house in hereditary is all on a sound stage Mm-hmm. Like the exterior is it is it, it was shot in Utah and they like built that you know treehouse or whatever, um, but yeah that's all like, that was all like built on a soundstage which I thought was fascinating because I thought we were in the middle of you know Utah I didn't even know it was Utah to be honest with you. I thought <laughs> yeah, it was like Montana I mean, I, or something but yeah I, they I leave didn't it know that either vague yeah. Yeah, um, I think Colin Stetson's score is really profound. 
Yes. In this film, and uh, that's great because he worked really hard on it. Colin Stetson uh, pulled some 16-hour days trying to finish the music in the film, of which there is 85 minutes of music. <laughs> like, Jesus. that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot yeah. for a feature-length film. Um, most of the film has music underneath it, which I think is... Right. It's different, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, that's all I really had to say about it. I just think it's, I think, I think, uh, first films by any director are interesting. Like when you start, to, when you break that feature film, uh, barrier and you go into direct your first feature film, like how, how people treat that, that project is always very interesting to me. I think sometimes right. you get guys who are like, or men and women who are like, uh, more prepared than others and you have people who are way less prepared don't know what they're doing and you hear the horror stories on that side but this seems like a situation where you know he just really came in over prepared and i think the film it really shows it it the film reads like something that was made by a master class director somebody who knew what they were doing almost like uh i would compare it to Eraserhead in that way that like Eraserhead yeah. is one of those it's so cleanly directed every shot matters every shot needs to be there that it almost feels like it could be somebody's seventh eighth feature film when it's really their first right um yeah and i'm i mentioned on a previous patreon episode which by the way you gotta get going mm-hmm. on the patreon Search you gotta <laughs> get going on that patreon <laughs> yeah you can find it on our twitter uh just 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 go to our patreon we, we've got tears baby uh bonus tears episodes tears. <laughs> yeah we've got tears for fears well right Folks. Yeah, or fears for <laughs> tears really yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, so I, I, I mentioned on a previous, uh, Chucky Dark about, uh, Blood Simple, which I had watched for the first time. And that is a, a film that is the debut feature for, uh, two, like, very renowned filmmakers. And when I watched Blood Simple, I loved it. But at the same time, it was hard for me to compare it to, uh, uh, some of the later Coen brother films that i love something like a fargo or something like that i i did i i will say blood simple was very interesting for me to watch through the lens of i've seen most of their later work and and have seen like what they're capable of i will say that i that something on the level of like hereditary is even more insane and i'm so excited to see uh what Ari Aster does. I don't think he can like mess this up for me at this point. I know he's only done two movies. I mean, maybe he can, it's pretty (laughs) early, but, uh, I don't know. Like the, like two, two movies that I have been thinking about for an entire week. One of which has been like entering my mind every once in a while for a year. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to, to talk about this, Jeremy. Excellent. Why don't we take a, a quick a quick break, folks? We got some commercials we're gonna get to, and then uh, yeah, we got some products we gotta we gotta shell off to you guys. So uh, buy whatever we're selling. Yeah, and if you're out there, and if you're if you're one of these guys who who owns a business, right? If you're if you're someone mm, out there who owns a business, business or if or if you want to like do like a very if you if you have an idea for like a very bad way to propose to. A person, uh, reach out to us. We're selling ad space. Uh, no idea how much it costs yet. 
Contact us at uh, Chucky uh, Chucky Rules four twenty at gmail dot com and Jeremy. Yeah, propose to your spouse <laughs> on a commercial for a podcast called Chat About Chucky. <laughs> yeah, that is also uh, changed its name to Arguing About Aster for yeah, two episodes. Yeah, Arguing About Aster. Propose is- on that. <laughs> <laughs> this whole change in the name thing is not going to be confusing at all. Nope. <laughs> All right, see you on the other side. Coming to you live this morning from the Mushroom Kingdom, WKBAG Studios, Wario K. Rule, Bowser, Andros, Gan, and this is Video Games, a comedy show. The only video game podcast that is funny at all. Join the Radio Morning Zoo Tycoon crew as we explore topics such as video game characters who eat stuff. And sure, Kratos is a father, but is he the ultimate daddy? Video Games, a comedy show is a part of the Schmidtcast family of podcasts. So subscribe for a brand new episode every Monday morning. You can find it anywhere podcasts are heard. That's Video Games, a comedy show. Welcome to Victims and Villains. This is the channel where we talk nerd, we talk hope, and we speak nothing else. I'm your host, Captain Nostalgia, and I'm so glad that you're here to join us. Victims and Villains is a podcast and YouTube channel that marries pop culture and suicide prevention, producing content with the intent to let people know that there is hope and that there is a better way and that each and every listener has value and worth. Listen to Victims and Villains on your favorite podcast catcher or on YouTube by searching for Victims and Villains. Also, check out their website, victimsandvillains.net. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> folks. We took a break. We, uh, I don't know. What did you, J- what did you do, Jeremy? I, I had a, a whole, whole heck of a, a break that we just, just did. But I want to know what a Jeremy Schmidt does when we, when we log off for a minute and uh, wait for them ads to play. Well, while those ads were running, Eric, I uh, took that opportunity to go to therapy. <laughs> I went to my therapist, and uh, we did about an hour, which I thought was, you know, that's the minimum amount of time. And really, I just had to get some of this film out of my brain, you know? I had to talk it out, word vomit, onto the onto the floor of that therapy office. Yeah. And, I, and I think that it went pretty well. And by doing about an hour at the therapist, you mean that you performed your stand-up routine to, <laughs> to uh-huh. a therapist? Well, close. I actually performed Aziz Ansari's new special from front to back. Uh, Rutro. Yeah, for for my therapist. <laughs> and I said yeah. at the end, "What do you think?" <laughs> and, and what did they say? They said, uh, you know what? I love it. I feel like you've really changed. Uh, I feel like uh, we forgive you now. Um, welcome back into the fold. Oh, because your therapist thought that you were... <laughs> Aziz Ansari. Aziz Ansari. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Did you do, did you do the Randy character by chance? Uh, Randy, if by Randy you mean horny, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess that's Aziz's whole, whole thing. Uh, <laughs> folks, we, we, we're just joshing with you. We just sat here in silence while the ads play. We, we, we can't talk over the ads. You know, I play them from my, uh, talk boy, uh, cassette player into the microphone and we just wait until they're done. I don't know. There might be an easier way to do it, but if there is, I ain't heard of it. Mm-mm, no. So, 
Annie Graham is, a, uh, of course, played by Tony Collette. She's a miniatures artist who lives in Utah with her husband, Steve. Their 16-year-old son, Peter, and their eccentric and reserved 13-year-old daughter, Charlie. Uh, so... What happens in the opening? So we see these this, these like miniatures that this yeah. uh, woman creates, and we get this kind of incredible shot. That's kind of like I don't know, like Disney esque. It's it's very like cinematic, classic cinematic kind of opening where we like zoom in on this miniature that we right. think to be this an- inanimate object uh, that depicts a boy sleeping in a bed. And then we kind of like transition into uh, the the boy is like getting woken up by his by his British father. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, Eric, um, this is a beautiful opening shot. And though I think that all of the miniature stuff in the film is incredibly beautiful. I think it is the weakest part of this entire movie. And I'm kind of excited to hear if maybe you can convince me otherwise, because this is the thing that I took the least from after leaving Hereditary was all of this miniature stuff. So Annie, Tony Collette's character, she does miniatures for a living, I guess, which is a weird job. And I feel like means something. But I'm just not really sure what. But yeah, as far as just the cinematography goes, we should mention it's a uh, the cinematographer's name is pa- uh, pa- uh, Powell uh, Pogor- Pogorzelski. <laughs> yes, Powell Pogorzelski. You did better than I could, have, buddy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he's been with Ari Aster from this film and Midsummer. I don't know if he's done the shorts with him also, but I don't um, think so. Maybe. But yeah, um, it's it's yeah. all of the all the camera work is quite good right off the bat. I think like I love this kind of old school camera movement and these push ins, and then of course we have the trick photography of it, like actually being a living person's uh, bedroom when we push in. Right, it's great, and uh, it sets the mood right away. Um, we're we're at a funeral for uh, we jump to a funeral for uh, Annie's secretive mother, Ellen Lay. Uh, and Annie delivers this eulogy, kind of explaining their uh, their their relationship, which wasn't very good, mm-hmm. um, and her mother's extremely private life. Uh, this was the was this the eulogy moment that you were talking about, or that you thought was really funny? Oh no, uh, we'll get there. It's it's when Char. Well, we'll get there. I'll, okay, I'll, I'll, I was I'll, trying I'll, to remember. I'll, I'll flag when it is. There's two, um, eulogy, two eulogies. Yeah. No, but this eulogy is the first great, I think, plot wheelie. If, if, if we're BMX biking, if the plot is a BMX bike, this was the first wheelie. <laughs> right. And yeah, it's, like, yeah, it's uh, like the first clue that something's going on. She talks about this very kind of distinctively traumatic and maybe abusive relationship she had with her mom. Yeah, and towards the climax of the film, we'll be doing bar spins, tail oh, whips. Oh, yeah. Superman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Matt Hoffman will show up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a week later, Steve is informed that uh, Ellen's grave has been uh, desecrated. Uh, Annie, at some point uh, early on, thinks that she sees an apparition of her mother uh, mm-hmm. while she's working. 
Let's um, uh, let's go through the family real quick. Let's make sure we yeah because we because we meet the whole family, and I I want right. to make sure that we know we know who everybody is and kind of post our thoughts about them here. But Eric, what did you kind of think about the family in general? If you if you can go through everybody. Yeah. So well, we have we have Peter, who I think is just kind of like a douchey, shaggy-haired uh, teen. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Steve, the dad, who is kind of like, I don't know, I guess very like, not strict, but he has like, he seems to have like high expectations for Peter. And mm-hmm. I guess Annie too, because he's kind of like pressuring her a little bit into completing, it, throughout this whole thing, Annie's got this pressure to to complete this, project that she's been working on these miniatures right um it's the old uh it's the old uh, gotta finish that novel plot right point, right we're like the right. oh they my agents are cracking down on me i gotta finish that i gotta give them something you know <laughs> right i guess that is kind of like a a tra- very traditional plot point although mm-hmm. i get because it's miniatures i think it that it kind of was disguised for me in a little bit more of an interesting concept than just another film about a writer who has a deadline. Right. I yeah, I agree. The actual thing is is very interesting. Um, yes. Yeah. And then we and, have Charlie. And, yeah, Charlie, who, <laughs> who is a very uh, introverted, uh, the introverted youngest daughter kind of character. And how would you describe? Uh, Charlie has something wrong with her. That's immediately apparent, right? What what would you say it is? I don't know. I I I I I picked up on that too, but I for me, I don't know. Like I I don't know if she has uh like uh what would it be like an Asperger's situation for, yeah. for kids that's that's mm-hmm. kind of like uh maybe antisocial and 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 that kind of thing on the um, on the spectrum of some sort for sure yeah yeah um and she also has a like the actress uh millie shapiro she has that she has a look about her that's very it's uh you don't you just don't see her that type of face on film a lot you i mean and i think that that should be worth noting is that like the, it, it like this to cast Millie Shapiro was risky and it paid off very, very well. Cause she's absolutely phenomenal in the film. Yeah. She's incredible. And yeah, th- it was definitely like a choice, um, uh, to cast her. And uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think her whole performance is awesome. Um, and this character is like really, I don't know. You kind of like feel bad for her from the get go, just because of your like, immediately looking at this like death of a grandmother through the perspective of this like young girl and she's already like got her own emotional stuff going on um yeah yeah and uh we should also note that pretty early on we get the clicking sound so the sound yeah it's like sounds like that and charlie it's a tick with charlie so i think she uses it to calm herself down yeah um you know uh, but it's it's it is the sound that will kind of keep coming back again and again as the film goes on. A motif, they call it in school. <laughs> so Annie lies uh, to Steve and says that she's going to the movies, and then she drives to a support group 
um, which she has been to before. Um, we find out a little bit about her her history with her family. Um, her mother suffered a mental mental illness. I think she said that she had like a a brother that committed suicide early on. Um, and we kind of learn about um, we we learn a little bit more about Ellen, and we learn we learn that um, Annie has been kind of like shielding Charlie from Ellen uh, up to this point. And we're kind of at this point, at least I was very it was a little like unclear to me what exactly is wrong with Ellen and 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 why she's kind of been shut out of this of this family but I don't know it it, it was like an interesting mix of like skepticism of what Annie is saying and also uh it's kind of understandable at the same time um I will say that this movie is I think a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people say this, and I think this is kind of where I fall too, is that this is mainly a movie about grieving. Yeah. Um, You know, and it's really intense film about grieving, like the most insane version of, of, of the concept of grieving. And mm-hmm. um, going back to the miniatures, I think that maybe those serve a purpose in in that and we'll get to it but there's like a point where she is actually like you know recreating the scene that we're about to that we're about to yeah. uh discuss yeah i think that there's like an implication to on on the ellen and charlie thing there's an implication that like ellen had gotten too close to charlie and that's not something that annie wanted so that so tony collette her daughter is charlie and her mom is Ellen. So it's the grandma and the granddaughter are kind of getting, we're kind of getting too close. I think that was like, that's, that's definitely what I took away from that. And yeah, you're right, Eric. Like Tony Collette seems like an unreliable narrator, but it also does seem like she has a, an overbearing and abusive mother who is then mm-hmm. going to just turn around and do the same thing to Charlie. So you get this sense that like, yeah, Tony Collette was trying to protect her daughter from kind of experiencing the same thing Tony Collette experienced while while growing up. Right. Yeah. Um and Jeremy before we go any further because uh I I would be remiss to uh discuss the film Hereditary without uh doing my friend Ryan O'Toole has this bit where do you know Ryan O'Toole? He's a very I, funny stand-up in LA. No, I I don't I do not. He every time the film Hereditary comes up, he uh, he says Hereditary more like her bed is scary, <laughs> and I don't know what it means. I don't know what he means by it, but it's very funny uh, of a bit that he just like continues to do it. I think I saw him like tweet that joke again not too long ago. <laughs> that. <laughs> That's very good. It, it's funny because it almost makes sense, but doesn't quite. <laughs> almost, but not yeah. really. Yeah. Um, I I really like how this family is portrayed. I think Tony Collette, I think if they would have gotten an, an actor who was any, whose chops weren't as solid as Tony Collette's, I do not think this film would have, would have, it would have sold me as early on as it did. But I think a very important element of Hereditary, and I think why we've spent so much time on the beginning of this film is because the beginning of this film is very important. What it sets up is an expectation that it will later 
rip from you like an appendage. But I, I do think that it's expertly crafted, very mm-hmm. well set up. And the only way they were able to pull it off, I think, is by making Tony Collette so fucking believable. Like, she is a real person. I believe everything Tony Collette does in this film. She's very sympathetic and she's being like her performance is of a person like I know I've known several people who act very similarly in the face of trauma or tragedy. Um, she's like she's got this quiet sort of sarcastic demeanor. She's still making jokes, but they're kind of dark. I mean, mm-hmm. and she's trying to be a good mom on top of that. I believe these people. And I think that is what a lot of horror films get so wrong is they just don't set themselves up properly a lot of the a lot of the horror films that we've seen even recently eric like take annabelle for example like yes. if annabelle had spent the time that hereditary took to make like the young couple feel like a real young couple that i really cared about you know i think it we'd be singing a different tune about that film but Ari Aster really knows what he's doing. He really, in this case, he, you know, he's like, he's like, it's important that we show these people and portray them accurately. Right. He uses the word, the words family melodrama a lot to describe this movie, uh, which I find interesting. And one of his, the, the short film I mentioned, the strange thing about the Johnsons is a similar, a similar thing. He's just really, really good at establishing not just characters, but, like character dynamics within a family. Um, yes. And this is like a perfect execution of it. So uh, we cut to Peter wants to go to this school event. <laughs> um, uh, where, no, he wants to go to a party, but he says right. he's going to, I think, a school barbecue or something. <laughs> and this, I forgot about this moment, but this was funny because he, he comes into Annie's little workshop and he's like, can I go to, uh, can I use the car tonight? And she says, for what? And he's, he's like, a school barbecue. And she's, she says, oh, so you don't want dinner? And he's, he's, he, he responds, no, I'll eat dinner. <laughs> like he just said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a very funny back and forth. But yeah. Um, yeah, so he basically has to bring Charlie with him. Uh, and Charlie doesn't want to go peter doesn't want her to go um they end up going to this like you know just classic teen high school movie party uh and charlie is kind of unsupervised in the kitchen peter leaves to go i guess like smoke out of a bong with some some girl he likes mm-hmm. and uh charlie starts like eating cake that has nuts in them which we established earlier she's allergic to nuts yeah Uh, she falls into an anaphylactic shock uh so peter um is all like high now and his, his sister comes in and she says her throat is closing in and he carries her to the car uh he's driving her to the hospital um, he swerves to avoid a, a deer carcass in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. And we just get this like truly like visceral and brutal, uh, decapitation moment, but by a telephone pole. Um, yeah. Charlie sticks her head out the window to breathe. Yes. It's, yes. it's so tense and awful. And when, <laughs> when the event quote unquote event happens 
the car stops, comes to a complete stop, and we're mm. in and we're in this moment now for how I mean, how long? Did you ever happen to count how long we're just sitting there? It's really the- long. I <laughs> yeah. I I didn't get the exact count of it, but it's like two or three minutes where we're literally just sitting in there living with Peter in this moment. Yeah. And there's a point where like a tear rolls down his cheek and it's like I mean, on paper, like a three minute shot of just like a boy sitting in a car like being able to make that so captivating is just incredible to me Yeah, (laughs) because if you would have told me hey sit down and watch this uh three minutes of a guy sitting in a car and he eventually starts crying it's like (laughs) i would not do that but it it doesn't feel too long when you're watching it it's really bizarre how Ari Aster can can kind of do this stuff with the pacing. I mean, it, it's well part of it with this scene in particular is the content. Like the content is so heavy, and I think we've all like the emotion that we're immediately connecting to in this is we've all fucked up and like known we fucked up and are like sitting with the anxiety of what the consequences are going to be of that. Mm-hmm. So we can all kind of relate to what he's going through. It's just no one can relate to it on that level. <laughs> like right. the stakes of having basically accidentally killed your sister mm-hmm. are so heavy that he can't even turn around to look. And I don't think he does. I think he just drives forward eventually. I think so too. Yeah. Maybe he looks back at the, I don't remember. I think, I think he might might look back, but either way, it doesn't matter. Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's crazy. And this was the moment. Um, I think going into this movie when I watched it the first time, I was kind of enjoying it and I liked it. But this was the moment, and there's a moment similar to this in Midsommar, which happens even earlier, where I was like, okay, this is uh this is gonna be like very tense for two more hours. Yeah, I would say that there's almost no tension. I mean, the scene where we kind of skipped over it a little bit, but it's but it's very brief. It's when she sees the ghost of her mom. Yeah. Sort of in in silhouette or like kind of just in the darkness. She can kind of see the smiling face of her mom. Uh that was very scary and very effective. But That was scary, yeah. Yeah, but this but from is just this like moment, a- yeah, from this moment on though, I would say that the feeling is less, it's less traditionally scary and more just absolutely tense like you want to throw up. It's so tense. And it starts here and it really honestly does not let up that much the rest of the film. And Um, even though we're, we're kind of building up to this decapitation, like the... I had this like feeling that was almost like you're expecting something to happen, but never anything like that, like that. Yeah. Uh, and I had remember having this feeling, and I kind of had it again when I was rewatching it, of sort of like, how dare you like make me watch that? And also, yes. <laughs> I'm in, baby. Let's keep doing this. Yeah. Um, um, you know. So Peter drives home, gets out of the car, and goes into his room and lays down with his eyes wide open and yeah. does not move until his mom goes out to the car and finds the headless body the next day. Yes. And we just hear, 
we just hear Charlie or we we hear Annie's reaction while we're staying on Peter, which is like so powerful and and uh, God, it, it, insane. And uh, yeah, so now the family tension is just like so high. Uh, it, it, it's 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 really uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, so we get we get like the most what I would call the most accurate portrayal of grieving in uh, in film I've ever seen and where Annie is basically just wailing and in loathing on yeah. the ground being held by her husband uh and this is the cut I'm actually talking about Eric so it's like during this sequence when she's screaming on the floor and then yeah. without without cutting the audio it cuts the visuals to being at the funeral where the body is being lowered and she's still screaming at the same yeah. volume. Yeah. And it's like, it is such a, it's well, the first time you see it, I think you're just so sickened by what's going on. Yeah. But that cut is hilarious. <laughs> it's <laughs> kind is- of funny now that I think about it. <laughs> I think I was just so in shock, but, yeah. but yeah. yeah. And that like, guttural scream from Tony Collette because we get a similar uh, not to talk too much about it but I it, there are a lot of comparisons to be made stylistically to Midsommar mm-hmm. like Danny does some of this ver- some very similar like guttural like not even weeping but just like just like I don't even know what you would call it. It's just like a scream of like sadness. And yes. like, she's like screaming that she wants to die and stuff like yeah. Annie is. And it's, uh, I don't know what Ari Aster does. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be like on a film set where like this, this happens. I would never want to be an actor that has to, uh, do this. And I think when like Tony Collette had to have given up, like, quite a bit of uh, i guess vanity or something to 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 take on a role like this because she's really you she's not a character that you hate like it's not like you're taking on the role of a villain but you're doing some like very raw emotional stuff that's like got to be really hard to tap into and you maybe don't want people to see maybe but i would also for I would also call it the role of a lifetime too. For uh, sure, on, yeah. On the same token because this is the, this is the kind of range of emotion that you're, you're you a lot of actors specifically women are not necessarily allowed to have all the time in film, you know? Like I think that I think that this is sort of the kind of role that you see and you're like, you know what? Yeah, I could do that. Like I could this is sort of what this is sort of what acting is. It's basically portraying emotion believably. And god damn, if she doesn't do such a killer job, uh, especially in, in these in these next couple scenes where she's just wait I mean, she's just wailing. But it's so I don't know, Eric, have you seen a grieving that way in real life? I feel like I have. Uh in real life? Yeah. Um no. I feel like this is like I don't know what what ha, you have. You said, uh, yeah, just at, like funerals and like di- oh, and, like, at funerals, envir- okay, yeah, yeah. like in, in in environments where people have lost somebody very close to them or suddenly lost someone or lost someone at a very young age. I, I think, yeah, this kind of guttural, almost primal scream 
is uh, is, so- is something that was very familiar to me and triggering to me when I was seeing it in the theater. I was like, oh my God, like they're yeah. really going there. You know, it's not just the the silently crying and trying to hold it together in a mirror. No, this is somebody losing control. Yeah. I, I've definitely witnessed crying in public before, I don't, but I don't think like this type of like wailing. Um, maybe I have. I don't know. If I yeah. have, I probably like blocked it out completely. Um, <laughs> actually, you know, you know what I, I, I actually did experience this, Jeremy. It was uh, I had gone to one of your sketch comedy shows, <laughs> and everyone in the audience was <laughs> weeping yeah. as if someone died. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's because I actually had a costume malfunction where somebody <laughs> did die. <laughs> yeah. 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 Seems to happen at all your shows, by the way. <laughs> yeah. They so, call me the sequence strangler. <laughs> <laughs> so Annie and Peter are um we get we get some dialogue about this later on, but we're we can kind of just sense the tension between them at this point. Um and Andy is Annie is pretty uh kind of cold towards Steve. Um, Peter is being plagued by Charlie's presence. There's a moment where he's laying in bed and, uh, I think he's sleeping and he hears the, uh, and wakes up and like looks around the room. Um, so Annie, well, and then like, and like the head falls off, right? Like he see, doesn't he see his sister and then her head falls off and rolls towards his bed and it's a basketball. Yeah, okay, yes, yes. And that cut is so, like, perfect and seamless. Mm-hmm. Like, that like that little trick, it, it, it's quite effective. And, again, yeah, so if, you're, if you haven't seen the film, you know, just picture just tension building and building and building throughout and has not let up yet up until this point. Sure, like, oh, people, yeah. aren't, people aren't wailing, but it's still, like, the tensest, uh, most most like kind of like uh like like icky types of of situations you'd never want to be in and if you haven't seen the film i think this goes without saying at this point but you shouldn't listen to these episodes <laughs> yeah 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 you <laughs> it's, different with, it's different with the chucky movies where you can kind of listen without watching uh but yeah you should definitely uh, uh maybe i'll put a little spoiler warning or something um I did mention we were going to go through the plot, though. I hope that no one's getting this spoiled for them. I mean, we do this uh, for every movie, <laughs> yeah. so they should know. Yeah, this is on you, listener. Yeah, this is on you. This is your fault. So Annie goes back to the support group, and then she kind of like drives, starts driving away. She thinks about going in, and then, and then I kind of get the sense that she thinks it's either lame or she just doesn't want to like come to terms with she's struggling to even like think about and come to terms with the stuff that she's just Mm -hmm. experienced and now she's going um with uh, the last time she was there was because her her mother died now she's going because her her daughter was decapitated yeah so it's a bit of a tougher situation uh, for her and as she's pulling away this woman joan who is one of the group members kind of stops her uh, and uh, they chat. Um, Annie tells her that she used to sleepwalk and uh, recounts an incident in which she woke up Peter in Peter's bedroom to find herself 
Peter and Charlie covered in paint thinner with a with a lit match in her hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so and we should say that this the woman Joan is played by Ann Dowd, who I feel like is always playing these kind of roles. <laughs> yeah. Well, what else, do you know? What else she's in? Well. The thing I know her from the most was that HBO show, The Leftovers, where she plays, a, essentially she plays a ghost in it who's just haunting the main character. Um, and, but she's also in The Handmaid's Tale, where she plays one of the brutal, I think, like, uh, whatever you'd call like the higher ups in like the weird, disgusting future cult of The Handmaidens. Right. Um, um but yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She, I really like this lady in this role. It's it's great. She's really mm-hmm. good at it, and she's really. I mean, I remember kind of like not knowing what to think of her at first, and and uh, the first time I watched this, and then uh, later on, I was like, oh, you fool! How could you like have not seen that this woman is? Uh, yeah, well, we'll get to it, but um, <laughs> so. That night at dinner, um, Ch- Charlie, no, I'm sorry, Annie and, uh, why am I blanking on uh, 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 the boy's name? Peter. The Annie and Peter, like, just get into it at the dinner table, and it's really brutal. At one point, Peter, she's, Annie's kind of, like, hinting that it's all Peter's fault, and Peter has this line that's something, uh, I'm not going to, ever get the exact wording but basically he says that um the reason isn't the reason that that she was with me in the first place because you made her go with me he says that to annie and that's like just so uncomfortable even like i don't know it's one of the more uncomfortable moments in film (laughs) for me uh and it's crazy and then uh, eventually, so Joan, uh, well, did we, so like when, when is the dream? Does it, is it around this time where, Oh, when uh, she's, when she's trying to pull his head off? Yeah. Or no, she's like, yeah, it's the dream where she like is, they're like yelling at each other while he's in bed and she's standing over his bed and she's holding like kerosene or paint thinner. Oh, like shit. she ha- she has a dream where then she like lights herself on fire. <laughs> right. Inside the dream and it's like one of the most subtle but like like it totally tricked me. Like I thought this was a real thing that was happening and then yeah. It turns out it was a dream that I didn't see coming until the dream until she woke up. You know what I mean? Right. I was like I was like, "Oh, fuck like i like i thought this was like because again the you have to understand the film is so tense you're like at this point fucking anything can happen like right like fool me once shame on on you fool me twice i won't let you fool me twice like i i'm I'm now expecting anything to happen (laughs) yeah um yeah this is one of the i get annoyed with dream sequences sometimes when like the (laughs) the <laughs> when the film is like toying with you of like is this a dream or is this not but i i definitely this this really worked on me um so that was i believe that night after that uh tense dinner yeah because you um, think i yeah. you you're i think i guess you suppose that she's going in there to apologize right so so you're like and then he wakes up he's like 
why are you holding that? And then you cut down and she's holding like fucking gasoline. And it's like, oh my God. It's just, it's so fucking scary. But anyways, right. yeah. So you're, uh, we're about to get into the seance scene, right? We're like, she meets Joan again yeah. in the parking lot. <laughs> in the parking lot of like a art supply store or hardware store or something. Yeah, and looking back, we should have probably seen that this was too convenient, right? That they're just right. like, well, that was happening upon her the moment for me where I, I think they kind of like to uh, Annie's sort of reaction to seeing her at first is like confused. I kind of picked up on like, it's weird that this woman is there right now. Um, and it's like very unusual, but so Joan basically says that she was able to talk to her son, her like dead son um, through, uh, through doing a seance. Um, so she kind of, convinces Annie to go over to her apartment and we see that Joan has like a rug a welcome mat that's like very familiar to Annie that she like can't exactly pinpoint uh she she doesn't connect it right away but she's she she mentions that hey my mom used to like make rugs like that a lot um and they do this seance um and they do like they start with like a cup on the table kind of thing and like move the cup one way for yes what the other way for no mm-hmm. and annie's very skeptical and once it starts working she's like mortified uh and she wants it to stop at, at one point um the uh deceased son i i guess is like writing on a chalkboard mm-hmm. uh and Annie gets freaked out and leaves. Yeah. Um, what did you think of this scene, Eric? <laughs> this was really, really tense. This was... Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, I felt like... I have been in situations where we've been doing, like, Ouija boards, and that can be really scary, or, or in situations where I'm just in, like, a scary place, and I felt the way that I feel in those types of situations, like kind of an anything could happen scenario yeah i i love i loved this scene so much um i thought it was so well done i think it's i think it's one shot i think it's a one take one taker and it's uh it's it's like it's like it kind of expresses every emotion i had while watching the film Tony mm-hmm. Collette is going through in this scene where she's so scared and so freaked out and so tense, but she's also like laughing because like, like yeah. it's just so crazy. Like at one point, like the ghost like blows her hair to like prove that the ghost is there and it freaks her out to the point where she just starts cracking up laughing because she doesn't know else, yeah. how else to react. And uh, my favorite thing about this scene, Eric, is that it works. We mm-hmm. actually see the fucking chalk like lift up and like write stuff on the and 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 from that moment i was like oh fuck like in this universe the story that they're trying to tell is a, a universe where this can happen <laughs> and i just thought that was a good choice uh, rather than it being like is it really working what is it is it a trick or you know like that was right. never a question it's like nope this works this is how you, you know, talk to the dead <laughs> all the realistic relatable horrors that we've experienced up to this point that mm-hmm. c- could actually happen have kind of like grounded us emotionally in a way where 
I I'm more receptive. I'm more accepting of of this coming up in the in the film. Yeah. I don't know why. Like maybe it's the fact. Maybe I'm still recovering from seeing a child's head get chopped off. But um. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting how well this this worked this works on me. So uh, Annie basically she she wakes up um. She wakes up, Steve, S- Steve, and and Peter. You yeah. know what? I might have had the the dinner scene might have happened uh, after the seance. I can't remember, but either way, because she wakes. I remember she wakes up. She uh, she wakes up Steve, and then uh, she wakes up uh, her son to uh, uh, ap- she apologizes to him right away. So that's right. why I think the dinner scene might have been right before this and she kind of convinces them to come downstairs and they don't really know why um i think we might have gotten the scenes in the right order i think i think that oh, seems okay. that seems right we're like she yeah they have a big fight and then she does the seance and then she comes back and apologizes and all that yeah yeah um yeah either way they, they do this seance and objects begin to move and break uh peter is freaked out he's just yeah. like telling her to stop uh, Charlie is uh, appears to possess Annie, and uh, p- this is when Peter is just like, "Please, I'm like so uncomfortable right now." And eventually, Steve douses her with water. Uh, Annie uh, suspects that Charlie's spirit has become uh, malevolent. Uh, she throws Charlie's sketchbook into the fireplace, but her sleeve also begins to uh, start on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so she retrieves it and heads to Joan's apartment uh, for advice, but Joan is nowhere to be found. So what do you think about all this the sketchbook stuff? Because I feel like the sketchbook stuff kind of comes up here like do like we see charlie drawing in the sketchbook in the treehouse towards the beginning i think does that ring a yeah bell? well yeah well, yeah for sure and like and like something we didn't mention but you know there's a lot of stuff in the beginning of the film like charlie is alive for at least a good 30 minutes in the beginning of the film and one of yeah. the things that charlie also does like we know about her is that she like creates weird, disgusting sculpture like things from found objects. And some of the found objects are like decapitated birds heads. So like she's already, she, she already ripped off a bird's head earlier in the film and then is herself decapitated. But I mean, it's just like these weird clues that are like, kind of like as, as, as much as you feel sorry for Charlie, you also realize there is something kind of disturbed about Charlie. Yeah. I, and, I guess, yeah, yeah, we should have covered the bird. Uh, and then she also, there's that moment in the beginning where um, she is, a teacher is saying something to her and uh, there's this shot where a, that bird smashes into a window. Yeah. And we kind of think that maybe Charlie had somehow caused that to happen. Yeah, but like because again, I think you're absolutely right about like the everything being grounded so well. It's almost like our brains don't let us believe something supernatural is happening at that point. Or right. even even like up until these very moments, I'm still going is it supernatural? Like what is is this a ghost story? Like yeah. because 
the film, again, it's so grounded and so relatable and so realistic up top and then goes in a completely different direction in a way that I have not seen done in a major theatrical release in, in, a, in a very long time. Um, people give this movie a lot of shit. Like, like, like horror film fans so, will sometimes... They, 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 I don't know. They don't like this film a lot. Like they'll call it derivative or whatever. They, it's, it, 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 but it's so weird to me because no matter how you feel about this film as a horror film, just as a as a film that had a major theatrical release from a plot construction point of view, this this movie is bonkers. Like it it completely yeah. departs from its original thesis, quote unquote, and follows a completely different logic thread and by the end of it it turns out they were both the same the whole time right it's so crazy but yeah i think that this this sketchbook stuff is more like it's more undeniable proof that we are dealing with something satanic some sort of supernatural thing um at this point i'm also kind of thinking it probably has something to do with like uh joan and maybe 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 Joan is 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 doing it the whole time. Maybe it's maybe it's Charlie and Joan, but something else is afoot here, and it is of the satanic variety. <laughs> yeah, something is, uh, indeed afoot, Jeremy. So, uh, <laughs> diving back into the plot here, Ren decides to challenge the anti-dancing ordinance so that the senior class can hold a senior prom. Oh, shit. You know what? I'm looking at my notes for Footloose. I'm sorry about that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what movie were we talking about? Oh, okay. Uh, Footloose 2. <laughs> <laughs> so Annie notices that uh, Joan's welcome mat resembles her mother's. Uh, she noticed that earlier as well, mm-hmm. but um, she kind it kind of like connects in her head. Um, so she goes through her mother's possessions in the attic she finds a photo album linking uh, Joan to Ellen. When we see Joan in this photo album, I'm just like, God damn, this is yeah. uh, things connecting in a very satisfying and horrifying way. And there's a book with information about a demon uh, named Payman, <laughs> who I guess is, I think he's the demon of mischief. And uh, he, when you put it that way, he sounds not threatening at all. <laughs> yeah, he uh, wishes to inhabit the body of a male host. So um, I, I found this whole sequence deeply disturbing. When yeah. I saw all the pictures of like them and doing the cult shit and like throwing the coins up in the air and stuff, I was like, "Oh God, it's worse than I could have ever imagined." <laughs> yes, it's. It's uh, like a form of dread that I don't get a lot from a lot of movies, but um, and I think they're intercutting this revelation about Joan with Joan casting that weird spell on Peter oh, from sure. a distance, right? Yeah, where he like bangs his head on his desk. <laughs> yes, because she's like yeah. screaming at him when he's eating lunch at, at, yes. at school. Yeah, yeah. That is, Jesus Christ! Uh, it, it's, it's, it's all insane. so bad. It's all so bad. <laughs> Um, so in the attic, Annie finds Ellen's, uh, decapitated body with strange symbols on the wall written in blood. Um, I think she's kind of like, she thinks it might be Ellen, but she's not exactly sure. But, uh, so then we get Peter slamming his head on his desk, breaking his nose. Um, 
Steve brings him home. Um, Annie shows Steve the the body in the in the in the attic, and I kind of I like Steve's character just fine, but I I thought it was like kind of weirdly satisfying to see him. Not even weirdly. I think you're supposed to feel satisfied to see him like finally see that Annie's not crazy. Like we get this in the Chucky movies a lot, where like mm. a character like finally sees uh, that the main character who's involved in the story is uh, you know what? the truth. Yeah, telling the truth. So I I never I I didn't get that vibe from Steve. I thought he up until basically up until his last moments coming up i thought he thought that tony collette did it hmm yeah you might thought, be right because there is I, a yeah because because he's like because he yeah. he's like ready to call the cops i think he's like he's freaking out in a way because and also i like steve a lot as a character he's yeah. very sympathetic to me because he's just going with the flow you know like yeah. he just wants like <laughs> he just wants like everything to be okay and for his family to not like fucking <laughs> lose their minds. Yeah, he just wants to be in bloody back in bloody old England enjoying a warm <laughs> a pint. <beer. laughs> yeah. No, you bring up a good point cuz he did that does make sense uh the, there is the whole thing in the beginning where he finds out about the grave being dug up. Right. Or, and uh he doesn't he like makes a they make a point to show that he doesn't tell annie about it so yeah that makes sense so uh annie shows steve the 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 sketchbook as well and begs him to burn it so she can uh sacrifice herself to stop the haunting um but steve assumes she has gone crazy uh, accusing her of desecrating ellen's grave um so when Annie throws the book into the fireplace, Steve bursts into flames and yes. dies. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter wakes up to find that uh, to find his father's uh, now burnt to a crisp uh, body. Not unlike <laughs> not unlike our boy Charles Lee Ray at the end of uh, Child's Play One. And exactly. <laughs> not unlike that at all. <laughs> you know what I love about this podcast is we're going to be like covering all these different franchises and things in depth where like people will just tune in to listen to the Ari Aster episodes yeah. and just come out with a useless well of knowledge about the Chucky film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're going to be all they're going to they're going to be like I lo- I like the episode but what was all the Chucky comparisons? <laughs> Why? Who cares? <laughs> um, so so uh, at this moment, uh, Peter sees one of the scariest moments for me. Uh, he sees like a naked man in, the, in a doorway mm-hmm. um, who I guess is the same man who smiled at Charlie during the funeral at the beginning. Yeah, um, I think all these people here at the end are supposed to be callbacks. Yes. To and, funeral goers. Yep. And uh, Annie chases uh, chases Peter to the attic, uh, which is uh, decorated with occult imagery. Uh, Annie is now <laughs> levitating. Uh, she beheads herself with a piano wire as a as a naked coven members look on. This is one of the most like 
absurd. I mean, this is just a point. If I would have like walked, if I'm just like walking, like say I went and saw uh, another movie that was out around this time last year, like a yeah. feel good movie. And I accidentally walk into the wrong theater after like going to get a refill of popcorn. <laughs> and I yeah. just see that. Yeah. I, I would be like so disturbed and confused <laughs> and I I would probably run home screaming. Yeah. Um, it's it would be so traumatizing to like just try to understand what the hell the end of this movie is out of context. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, um no, so yeah, she's cutting her own head off with a piano wire very disturbingly um and it's around this time that Peter, like they rush him. Some of the naked cult members rush him and he jumps out the window. Yes. Um, Yes. And and when he stands up, (laughs) uh, he clicks his mouth, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. As he's lying on the ground, this light enters his body, um, which we see uh, Charlie sees early on in the film. Um, But he he follows uh, Annie's... uh, corpse or levitating corpse into the tree house because um, it's like why the hell not I'm already uh, <laughs> I've already experienced the craziest shit I'll ever experience in my life it can't get more nuts than this right mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, so he goes into the tree house and all of these <laughs> naked old people put a crown on him and uh <laughs> Charlie, Charlie's uh, severed head is resting on top of a mannequin. Joan, uh, the other coven members, uh, and the headless corpse of his mother and grandmother bow to him, mm-hmm. and uh, they kind of tell tell him that everything's going to be that everything's okay now and stuff like that, and they start addressing him as Charlie. Um, they swear an oath to him as payment. Uh, and then, and they state that he has been liberated from his female host, or she, I guess, Charlie, um, and is free to rule over them. And that's it. That's the end. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, come on, <laughs> like boingo, boingo, bingo. Uh, yeah, what I like ending. that. That's become your catchphrase, by the way. I'm trying it on. You know, I might, I might change it up here in a bit, but uh, I'm liking it for now. Now, Eric, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm did, working did, on my own uh, yeah. catchphrase. By the way, uh, tell me if, tell me if you think this is any good. Okay. Uh, I'm worried that this has been done before because, uh, you know, we're it's 2019. There's been a lot of catchphrases, but sure. What do you think of this one? Mm-hmm. Um, Heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'd like it. If you are referencing something else, I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that that's great. Then I'll keep using it. I uh, thought for sure you were going to say get her done. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. yeah. So what did you what did you think about this ending? Um, I I was uh confused by it the first time that i saw it and then i like realized its significance and how everything tied together like maybe a day later after i was like thinking about it like it didn't really i i had like received all of the information 
And it just took my brain a while to put piece together the significance of everything and how it all leads up to this moment, I guess. Um, the second time I watched this movie, I, I was delighted to see it. And it, it was, you know, the thing about it stylistically is it, it catches you so off guard because mm-hmm. it's like getting to the end of, uh, I can't think of a good example, but like of like a video game or something where you've gone on this like long journey and you're just in this like, y- it all kind of culminates in this like room that's all like gold and everything is like good and you get this crown and everyone's yeah. like praising you. I don't know. It, it's a very like... Uh, like a we are the champions kind of a situation for Charlie. Um, yeah. I I don't know. I, I, I definitely like the ending a lot. What what about you? I um thought you said something earlier, which I thought was very funny, but it was like, you know, Peter is just now walking up to the tree house following his mom's floating corpse because why the hell not and i kind of <laughs> feel like that about this whole ending sequence which is like well this movie has to end some way i don't think i don't think i would have been disappointed by any ending in particular because they had already paid off everything that i wanted from a film pre-ending but right. yeah this this ending is very like yeah great i'm now i'm just along for the ride you you've already convinced me that this is the most bonkers thing i'll ever watch Mm -hmm. so now just take me on the ride baby where else do you want to go you want to go to you want to go to a freaking denny's you want to take all these people to denny's and have like a weird brunch scene with all these naked corp let's do it like let's go like let's let's get weird with it i thought i thought it was uh but i thought this was particularly good um i cannot think about this film without without also bringing up the film rosemary's baby Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric, have yep. you seen Rosemary's Baby? Oh boy, have I seen Rosemary's Baby? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, not it's too, one of my uh, favorites. I will say, yeah. Um, why am I blanking? I was Polanski. I will say, I'm like a big Polanski. I'm a fan of Polanski's movies, and I. Uh, it's hard for me to separate art from the artist. For sometimes. sure. Um, I feel bad about it, but I there are some Polanski movies that are just like all timers for me. Rosemary's yeah. Baby is one of them. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing where like I I hear people talk about Woody Allen in this way a lot, where I just don't relate at all because I don't care about. You could throw Woody Allen's films in the garbage yeah. and light them on fire, and I they're not don't that good. Think I would miss them, uh, but even though I recognize that th- there was talent in there, you know, I think Annie Hall probably is really good uh, but i just don't i i don't know it's not the same thing for me as like rosemary's baby is such a iconic film chinatown is so iconic i i, I anyways what i'm saying is i hear what you're saying but yeah yeah the film uh rosemary's baby functions in in an incredibly similar way to this film it builds mm. in a lot of the same ways it asks a lot of the same questions this film asks and its ending is it completely. I would say the ending of Hereditary is almost. It's it's hard. It's hard to say. It's not kind of almost ri- like ripping off 
the ending of Rosemary's Baby. Because the ending of Rosemary's Baby is essentially that. It is like all of the fears that you had about this being a cult are actually true. And the worst thing is possible. And the thing that really tips you off is the imagery of all these smiling white faces. Yeah. Sort of laughing into camera. Like that is what is so haunting about hereditary and I'll and I'll uh, go on to say the same thing about midsummer when we cover that film too yeah is it's these shining these shining pleasant faces in the face of absolute horror old where, naked white yes, people old naked <laughs> white people laughing and smiling at yeah. you even though the worst has been done i think that this film you know, like by the end of it, it is these pe- these old, I-, I I would call them like Southern California, almost like uh, what would you call like a Aryan looking, freakish white people <laughs> worshiping this this like uh, this demon god, and they win, and I think that that's oh that's horrifying, and it's horrifying yeah. in the case of Midsummer as well, and I and it's something that's. But it is also something that is very, I guess, uh, it taps into a fear that I think a lot of us didn't even know we had, which was... Yeah, you know what it is? (laughs) And this just connected with me, but it's like this and uh, Midsummer. I'm going to keep saying Midsummer. I feel like... That's fine. Double down. (laughs) you saying it Midsummer, and I say me saying Midsummer will... uh, cover all the bases the right one will, no one yeah. <laughs> can get mad at us uh but this this film and that film and i guess don't listen to the next 30 seconds if you haven't seen midsummer yet but both situations are kind of like a cult wins mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of yeah. and you don't want to see that you don't want to yeah like, all, like cults are always dismissed as being wrong and and absurd yeah and uh it's the idea that they that like whatever crazy crackpot philosophy they have actually like happens and and like pays off is terrifying yeah and um yeah i i will uh i will say one more thing about this film before we wrap up because we because we oughta but Uh, we could do another two hours Another two hours on Hereditary alone? Yeah. You got it. Yeah. You got, I, I was going to go through I, I, the plot backwards. <laughs> I feel like we could spend so much time talking about this film and unwrapping this film and unpacking all the layers to it because I think there's stuff that we haven't even like touched on at all. But but that's okay. You know, we don't, we don't have to encompass every part of it. But one thing I do want to say on record on the subject of Hereditary is the cinematography of the film is probably the thing that I found to be most impressive when I left it, mm-hmm. when I let, when I yep. left the film and particularly this ending sequence was what really sold it for me because so in, in when Peter wakes up after his dad is burst into flames, we kind of cut <laughs> to Peter in bed. We, and we don't know what's going to happen because we don't know where Tony Collette is and we don't know. We don't know like what's going on. We don't know anything. We don't know if that was a dream. We, we're, we're kind of expecting the worst, you know, hoping for the best. But Peter wakes up and when he gets out and when he like sits up in bed, there's a long, I would say two to three minute long shot of him like waking up, sitting up in bed and in the corner of his room 
is the silhouette of Tony Collette, who is just glued to the corner of the of the actual room like Spider Man. Yeah. And yeah. when you're oh. watching the film in theaters, um, and I'm sure depending on what kind of TV you have, this this might this might differ, but it is so dark and kind of hard to see that my eyes like had to adjust several times to the shot. And I several times went, no, she's not there. Wait, is she there? Is that her? Like in the theaters, me and my girlfriend were pointing at the screen going like, is that a person? Is she in the corner of the, you know what I mean? Like that's how fucking precise the shots are of people standing in darkness. Jeremy, I got to tell you, I watched this on a second generation iPod video and I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, cause like some, you know, some, uh, displays on certain TV models are brighter than others. And, you know, I think it's the, the mystery of it was so fucking scary in the theater that I wonder if it's, it has that same effect on all displays, I think was my thing. Cause like also yeah. there's that shot of the naked man silhouetted inside the door frame. That's also like that where you can just barely make out his face and naked torso. But I yeah. think his like junk is covered with shadow. So that's how pre- precise the fucking they're dialing in that lighting cue there. It is. Right. It is like I've. I don't think I've seen a film. Maybe other than like an Ingmar Bergman film that like plays with light in such a weird and unique way, and I swear I've never seen it used in horror to this effect before. Right. Like I've seen things jump out at me. I've seen things peek out of the darkness, but this was different. This was like things standing in darkness, on on in a shot fully visible quote unquote that i'm still like having to guess like well they haven't moved tony collette hasn't moved so is it really her is she really there and then you see her of course crawl across the the ceiling and you're like fuck yeah and (laughs) there's that moment there's that moment uh right before peter goes up to the attic where he's like uh sitting on his bed and you we see we see a figure which is uh annie Mm -hmm. um just floating like hor- like levitating above this is the first time we see her flying and it's like so quick that it's you could blink i think i missed it the first time i saw it cuz i didn't remember this but you just see for a split second her yeah. like flying across the room out the door and it's like it's it's crazy it's yeah very good. it's it, it's so well done um and it really is like this this ending sequence that showcases i think some of the better ideas the film had as far as like what will scare you and how we're going to scare you yeah um yeah so jeremy i i know that we do like the ratings for the uh for some of the stuff we've done ratings we've kind of ranked the chucky movies uh i kind of don't want to rank <laughs> ari aster's work in a weird way sure uh, uh, just because, like, I don't know. I, 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 mainly I'm afraid of backlash, but also, uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I think, I think that this movie and Midsommar, which we're both really excited to talk about, I think that's like, from what I've gathered from his interviews, is kind of what he wants. Like, mm. uh, especially with Midsommar, but. Mm. I don't know. I, 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 I guess what I'm trying to say is 
I really like this movie. I've said it before. <laughs> if if a if a film, if I'm thinking about a film the day after, it it did its job and I'm thinking about this film. I'm like analyzing this film a year later on a podcast, right. um, which I should point out I'm in my uh, parents' basement right now. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, Jeremy, do you have any like final, I guess, thoughts on the, on the film before we jump into the mid-Samar? Well, Eric, I will say that you might not want to rate this film, but I do. And yes, Hereditary is better than Curse of Chucky, but not better than Seed of Chucky. And then Eric, you play like a guitar solo after that, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll do that. I'll I'll purchase an electric guitar and an amplifier. Yeah, and then learn how to play. Yeah. No, I'll walk into a guitar center and I'll put on, I'll say, sir or madam, where is the loudest amplifier you have? <laughs> I'll plug yeah. in a, 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 a PV of some kind, a PV guitar, PV and make guitar. the, make the uh, guitar center salesman hold a microphone to the amp, and I'll <laughs> tell him, don't worry, it's for a podcast. Yeah. No, in all seriousness, uh, we, we did a podcast not, not too long ago that was our top five favorite horror films, uh, like you do when you're podcasting in 2019, yeah. uh, and I think that uh, Hereditary was like my number three favorite horror film of all time and you know it, it might even rate it might even climb the ranks as time moves forward i i think the hereditary will will stand the test of time as being one of the greats one of the yep. great horror films of our generation it is it is incredible i think you know there's never enough time to talk about all these things um uh, but if you have any thoughts about it please uh, reach out to us uh, at uh, Chucky at Charles. What is it? No, at Chucky uh, Rules Four Twenty. <laughs> our okay. So I should clarify: our Gmail and Twitter account will remain Chucky Rules Four Twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, this is more of an off-air discussion, but we might we might alter the the Patreon uh, to be more because we're going to be changing the name. It, I guess as we go on <laughs> sure. uh, with the with these, um, we, we we don't know exactly, but you can find the Patreon through our Twitter very easily. It's like our our main link, right? Um, and yeah, so reach out to us at Chucky Rules Four Twenty, and the same for Gmail. For um, we love hearing like requests. Um, we, we, uh, love hearing just general feedback. I feel like we've received both positive and negative feedback and, uh, Courtney, I'm talking about you. Yeah. And, thanks a lot, uh, Courtney. Thanks for keeping us, keeping us humble. Keeping <laughs> us humble. Cause before you told us that we're idiots or whatever you said in, on Twitter, uh, I, I felt like I am perfect, and now I just feel, um, well, I've been, let's just say I've been taking medication ever since, Courtney. <laughs> Courtney, I'm joking around. Everyone, Dad Wears Glasses, Brian, the whole gang, thanks for listening. To quote the great Ryan O'Toole, her bed is scary, and Jeremy, because I did not think of a, a good sign-off, uh, this is the end, friend. Yeah.